Hello, and welcome to Under the Skin, starring Russell Brand. Is that how I say it? <laughs> yeah. Under the Skin with Russell Brand. <laughs> Here's your host, good old, yes, looky here, get ready, guys, Russell Brand. This week I spoke to David Kessler. David is a death and grieving expert and author of many books, including The Needs of the Dying, a guide for bringing hope, comfort and love to life's final chapter and Finding Meaning, the sixth stage of grief. David was amazing and it was an incredibly beautiful conversation. Actually, quite I found it quite moving. Did you, Jen? Yeah, but you were really moved. What do you mean I was really moved? You had, that moved. You had red puffy eyes. All they were the time. not red. They were not puffy. <laughs> I, had I thought you were going to cry all the time. I had a thing in my eye. No. What it was was it's bloody COVID. It's no. bloody COVID. It puffed my eyes right up <laughs> not a like symptom. a couple of apricots. If you want, go to <laughs> grief.com. Uh, to get some support around bereavement. He does some amazing stuff, David Kessler. It was a very, very beautiful conversation. Yeah, I did nearly cry a couple of times because it was very, very moving. And because unlike some people <laughs> from the island across the water, I have a flesh and blood heart beating in my chest, not a bit of grit, stinking slush for I don't blood. like feeling sad. No one does. No things. one does. <laughs> look, at my, look at my lovely toucan cup you got me. You have to describe it where it's audio. Oh, yeah. Right. So if you're just listening to this and not looking at it because you're in the room, I've got Jenny bought me this rather lovely toucan mug because of my spirit animal, what I'm embracing, which is called the toucan. Now, if you can imagine, it's a lovely, lovely cup. It's shiny and it's got its handle is its beak. And like you hold its beak, which I don't feel like that right about. It's got little wings as well. Look. Oh, my God. It has got little wings. and He's got lovely blue eyes and he's my little toucan. And you hold him by his beak. So that's like you're sort of holding him by his sort of snout in yeah. a way, isn't oh, it? Yeah. You would never do that to a toucan, would you? No. Like reach oh, in oh. and get it by its beak. I'd be scared you'd break it off or something. Yeah, snap. Often with a bird's beak, you could think, <laughs> break that off and oh. see what it looks like without it. Give it lips. <laughs> like if it had But <laughs> is it just a hole then? There's no teeth. You could use one of those um, lips sweets, you know, <laughs> and put that there and then it would have lips. Yeah. But this, my point is not about any of that. My point is I'm very grateful for this mug and it's the kindest thing you've ever done for me, Jen. Oh. Solely because it's the only kind thing. Oh, your Christmas present didn't arrive. Where is it? I know, I have to speak to them. What is it? I can't tell you. Well, I think the surprise of Christmas <laughs> no, has long subsided. It's nearly Easter. <laughs> can't wait with bated breath for this amount no, of time. Say because cool. what if I get it and then it's not a surprise anymore? I suppose I've got old Toucan. Yeah, I think the Toucan's better. Well, how could it not be? I mean, he's a magnificent <laughs> thing, isn't he? He's satisfying to hold, pull his little beak about. Me and my kid, we play this game, you know, she's superheroes and I have to sort of commentate on these races she does. And there's a weird bit, she goes, right, say I'm on the race and then I fall over on a on a bird's beak. She always <laughs> says that. It's a weird, isn't That's a weird, weird detail. to decapitate the bird. Not decapitate. She just talks about the bird's beak. <laughs> oh, she talks about it in isolation. A yeah, bird's weird. beak. It's creepy. Don't know where she's picking all this weird stuff up. <laughs> Listen, we're going to um, talk to David Kessler in a minute. I've already spoken to him and he's absolutely magnificent and beautiful. It's a very heartening and lovely conversation. How did you enjoy the most recent <laughs> Zoom call with Chisel was, Chin Steve? It was, yeah, it was good. <laughs> I brought up about his chisel chin to his face. Yeah, you should have. I did. Good. <laughs> Instead of doing it behind his back. Well, I've done it to his face now. I've done it to his chin. <laughs> he says he sends it to his mum. 
He sends them to his mum. Chisel Chin Steve's mum, hello. We are sending you love and respect. Congratulations on your genes. Yeah. Assuming you're his biological mum, which we're not going to assume. But in any case, congratulations on Steve's chin, whether that's <laughs> biologically created by you and your partner or via somebody else. Still a great chin, isn't it, Jen? Now, yeah. should we get into the nitty gritty of, <laughs> of your affection? No. My affection? You mention Steve all the time. I may mention Steve and I may care well, for Steve. Well, guess what today is? What? Steve's birthday. birthday? What should we no, get? No, it's the birthday of all... something. No, what does he want? Bir- oh, well, if mug? it is his birthday, that's weird. Why? What is his birthday Because it's the birthday of? of my exes. They all, they're the same birthday. All Jen's exes <laughs> are born on the same day. What are they, triplets? It's weird, isn't it? I just texted Ollie there to say happy birthday. And what, and all your exes are born well, on the same day? That seems a bit... It's weird. You don't need to learn a new day, which is good. Well, what I'm going to say it is, Jen, is disgusting. Well, I don't choose them based on the day. <laughs> I think it's birthday incest. That's what I'm calling no. that. That's horoscope incest, isn't it? I know, it? all Pisces. Ugh, look at you. Slipping around, tickling their, <laughs> tickling their trout tums oh. with your incest birthday fingers. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> Let's find out what's... Day- Chisel Chin Steve, if you're listening... Okay. Send us your birthday. And what about the other guy, Phil? Sent you such a nice email today, or me a nice email about you. What did he say about me? He said that it was a very powerful intro, and that See? you you sound like you got your energy back after last week, and your voice is shimmering like it usually is. Oh God, Phil, I love you. That's why I've written you this song, Phil. <laughs> what? Oh no. Fill me up. It's called. Where's the energy <laughs> been gone? He was ill last week, so he's all snuffly. I wasn't snuffly. I wasn't snuffly. Snuffly? You buy me a toucan mug to make up for your coke comments. And then you come in with snuffly? You were ill. Yeah, I had a cold. I wasn't snuffling. A lot of people said I sounded sexy and raspy on the internet. Actually, your voice is deeper when you're ill. I meant to say it at the time, but... What are you saying now? Where's she going, gal? What's happening? Is it... There's another insult coming. There's always one on its way with Jen. If you miss one insult, there'll be another one on its way any minute. Another mug. We <laughs> could have so many mugs. I, I, you can't buy me any more toucan mugs. They're a novelty item, aren't they? Well, you drank out of it. I oh, know. I love it. <laughs> but I'm saying another one. Where do you go? Okay. So listen, David Kesler coming up soon. <laughs> I'm going to be releasing... Yeah, so anyway, you've heard about that. You've heard about Chisel Chin Steve. You've heard about our Zoom calls. You've heard about Phil and my affection for him. Now it's time for your comments on the second part of the Adam Curtis podcast. Swami Potananda says, Russell Brand, sadly, world politics, especially those in Parliament, has become so corrupt, like a den of parasites that serve only giant corporations and have forgotten they're meant to serve on our best interests. Oh, I know. I don't agree with that, Swami Potananda. I'd say they're a lovely bunch and they're doing their best. Yeah? Yeah. Fair enough. No, I, I agree with you. <laughs> Owen Campbell Music. Brills, mate. He certainly doesn't enjoy your frilly knickers, but he did enjoy the tickle. What does that mean? I don't know. I thought it was just weird. Nice bit of language. Leah Soberoff. Would love to hear your thoughts on Dante's The Divine Comedy. Let me get back to you when I've read it. <laughs> Mailing list. Alliance. Clique. You can join our alliance. Clique. Stroke mailing list. How do you pronounce clique? Clique. What? <laughs> Click. Don't hold your chest. Why are you, why are you reaching towards your solar plexus? Because I did a bit of a... 
What? It's clearing my throat. Oh, yeah, I snuffle for a moment. <laughs> I was just giving the backstory. <laughs> if you want to join a clique, do you want to be in a clique? It's a mailing list clique. Sign up for our mailing list. You can send me emails. We'll send you original, raw content. Me, exclusive, just for you. You'll be a member of an exclusive, exclusive club. Sign up to this mailing list. We do live Zoom calls with people, don't we? You'll get taught a meditation technique, a tapping technique, free of charge. It's absolutely free. The mailing list is free and the stuff we give you on it is free. All we're doing is harvesting your data. <laughs> no, we're not selling it to anyone, are we? We're no. harvesting it for ourselves. But when will there be a harvest for the world? We still don't know after all them years. Do we? No. So uh, <laughs> you'll go to free live online events. You'll be the first to hear about my upcoming events and projects and stuff like that. Also, follow me on YouTube. You get really good videos. I hope you've been watching them. There's that one one about Bill Gates and the farmers and all that. What's another one I done? Mainstream media I done. That's a good one. Great reset. Great reset. If you want to learn about that, old Russ is your man. And there's going to be a new side channel called Awakening with Russell. Mm. It's good, isn't it? Good name. We settled on that name? Yeah, yeah. I love it. Here you'll find videos on meditation, yoga and wellness. It's not quite launched yet. It'll be out soon. Why are you all exchanging glances? <laughs> Sorry. Demaya's face I was sure lit up. If that was still relevant. It is relevant, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is it relevant? Yeah. You had to touch your nose. That's a non-verbal. <laughs> That's a bloody non-verbal. First it's the solar plexus, then it's the snout. <laughs> if you want to get in touch with me on social media, you can. I'm on all of them. Follow me there. Okay, let's get to David Kessler now, because this is an important person to an important subject of grief, conveying important wisdom and information and nearly making me cry. And probably would make anyone cry <laughs> if they had something <laughs> resembling a heart in their flinty little chest. Oh. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's, ah, the fact that you went, oh, oh, shows that you feel that you are flinty. Flinty? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Flinty? <laughs> flinty little fella, aren't you? Do they start fives? Yes, you could, Jen. Yes, you could. There's no end to what you could do. All right, let's listen to David Kessler. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Well, lots of people, when they knew I was speaking to you, when I've been telling people, were so excited about about us having a conversation. Well, not about us, because that suggests that I'm part of it, about you being on this podcast. And I'm really grateful to you for coming on. I, I'm starting to look at your work in a, a different light, given what's going on, by which I mean a, a perhaps social. Mm. Right. And we actually... We were a little bit of victims of this, that I was doing a 30 city tour of the book when COVID happened in March and I was about to go to the UK. And I remember they were negotiating with Charlie for me to do your show once I was there and obviously everything got canceled. So yeah. it's full circle that we're finally together here today. David, thank you so much for um, coming on the podcast. I, I suppose the thing I'm, of the many things I'm interested in talking with you about are the broader and social applications of your in your individual understanding of grief, particularly the five stages, your addition of a sixth stage and how 
personal evolution and awakening, particularly in the areas that you you write about and are, forgive the word, an expert in, uh, how they apply on a broader social scale? Absolutely. I think when people hear the word grief, they think the death of a loved one. Yeah. We don't often think of grief as coming up every day now in our COVID world. We don't think of grief as coming up in breakups and divorce and betrayal. We don't think of grief as coming up in addiction and so many places it does. So it's, um, it, it, you know, I always tell me when people say, what's grief? I think it's two things. One, it's always a change we didn't want. Mm. And it also often has to do with a connection or a love that's been lost. What resonated most with me when you said that was, um, a, I know you've had a personal and tragic experiences of grief and anyone that knows about you will understand that I'm sure. And I'd love to talk about that. Um, but most immediately when you spoke about grief in a way that's um, not associated with you know, bereavement and and very literal mourning was what you said about addiction like when my behavior changed around drugs and alcohol when my behavior changed around sex i definitely experienced a kind of a sense of loss even though the the, the love was much more about attachment rather than love in a well it makes me makes me think that maybe there are many aspects of love that are not actually selfless that but are actually reframed to desire and need so it's interesting to grieve something that might be bad for you that seems like an odd thing absolutely you know when when someone's in their addiction we're we're grieving missing them when someone becomes sober they can still grieve their 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 life when they used you know it's interesting we we have that sort of mom and pop grief we think of but there's so many real world sort of grittier griefs that we have to deal with i'm scared of grief i'm scared of it like you know that famous maxim of like uh, grief is the price we pay for love like sometimes with my animals i remember it with my cat that's uh, he died last year i remember that and you know with uh, like you know with pretty much everybody actually i sort of like try to conceive of their death while i'm with them i try to sort of both from a perspective of acceptance but also in a kind of weird infatuation way is there a positive way of sort of mobilizing that idea accepting the inevitability of uh, literal and bodily death without it becoming like sort of obsessive and fetishistic or something well, I think I've had to adopt a different view of all that. First of all, there's a, a healthy thing called anticipatory grief, that when a pet's getting older, when our parents are getting older, we, we sort of know we're going to lose them someday and have this healthy adaption that our mind is trying to grapple with. Um, so that's the healthy part of it. I certainly, dealing with this my whole life, have had to really reckon with love and grief are a package deal on planet Earth. Grief is actually optional. You don't want to grieve ever. You don't have to. But you can't fall in love. You can't have friends. You can't attach to pets. You can't love your children or your parents. When I realize all that, I'm like, well, I don't want to make the journey without love. I mean, I want to come here and love, and it means I'm going to lose someday. 
I'm going to lose the people I love, the pets I love, the things I love. That's that's part of this this travel we all do. Can you tell us about your formative experience of grief, the loss of your mother, and then how the uh, the later grief, the loss of your son, um, which I'm obviously sorry to hear about, and, and of your mother, of course, but you know, especially the loss of a child. Um, can you ex- tell me how those two experiences of grief differ and how they affected and changed you and how you dealt with them? Sure. You know, it's, it's, I'm in a profession that in some ways you don't choose, it kind of chooses you. You know, no third grader is like, oh, I want to be a death and a grief expert when I grow up. You know, I had a mother who was ill when I was growing up. And when I was about 13, she had to go to the hospital in the big city because she was uh, very sick. I didn't know she was dying. And at the time she was dying at the hotel across the street where we were, um, a shooting began. And it turned out it was one of the first mass shootings in the US. It's tragic, we have them all the time now, but it was one of the first big ones. And in the span of three days, I wasn't able to be with my mother when she died. I saw hotel guests, police officers, and the chief of police died. And it's now used as what not to do in a shooting because they made so many mistakes. They just didn't know how to handle it at the time. And and there was also racial overtones to it and so much of what we still deal with today. And that changed the trajectory of my life. I, you know, tried to heal myself, tried to, there was no one there to help me with the trauma, with the grief. So that began my life of trying to help myself, help others. I was fortunate to work with some amazing people. My teacher became Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who is a pioneer in the hospice world, along with your Cicely Saunders there in the UK. And they started hospice in our world. And um, uh, she obviously um, came up with the five stages of dying. Over the years, I would talk about Elizabeth, those stages are getting badly used for grief. And finally, we wrote a book called On Grief and Grieving, where we adapted her stages from dying to grief. The stages, for anyone not familiar with them, are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. We literally, on page one of the book, said you don't do them in order. They're not a map. There's no one way to do grief. It's unique as our fingerprint. And it's interesting over the years how they've changed because they've become these five easy steps for grieving. And Elizabeth and I both hated that then and I hate it now. There's no five easy steps for grieving. And it's interesting on social media, sometimes people will put in, oh, you and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross are just trying to neaten up our grief and make us follow your rules. And Elizabeth was a rule breaker. Elizabeth would hate this idea that there's these stages you're supposed to follow. So they've gotten a bad rap. The other thing is acceptance got a finality that we never intended. You know, when people say to me, how long am I going to grieve my loved one who died? I always go, well, how long is your loved one going to be dead? Because if they're going to be dead a long time, you're going to grieve them a long time. 
It doesn't always mean with pain. Hopefully in time you can grieve them with love. So that's kind of the background on the stages and a lot of my work. Um, and then, as you mentioned a few years ago, after doing this for decades, I had adopted two children, four and five years old from the LA County foster care system. My younger son was um, uh, born drug exposed and I really thought love would conquer all. And they had this amazing childhood. And it really was beautiful. I was shocked at sort of their turnaround and how well they were doing in life. And then at 16 years old, my son David called me one night and said, I'm in trouble. And I said, what's up? Where are you? What's going on? And he goes, I've used drugs. And I said, okay. And in my mind, I'm like, did you have a couple of beers? Did you have some pot? What did you do? And I go, well, what'd you do? What's going on? And he goes, I did crystal meth. And I'm like, wait, wait, you're starting with crystal meth? And it was a hard road to comprehend. And I have certainly in my life been in program, been when Al-Anon, I, I sort of Got it from my older perspective, but not this new world we're living in. And uh, I, we spent the next four years, him going in and out of rehab and 12-step programs and just a tumultuous road, a horrendous road as anyone who's had to deal with knows. And uh, he got sober. He was doing well, had his 21st birthday, had a wonderful girlfriend who was a social worker. And literally, I would say to him, David, I am seeing so many bereaved parents from addiction these days. Promise me I will never be a bereaved parent. And he's like, you will never be a bereaved parent. I'm sober now. And even when I wasn't, I knew what I was doing. And got the call one day that he, his girlfriend, had had an argument that any 21-year-old has, called up some old friends. They went out and used. They lived. He died. Brutal. What gets me is, like, the sort of mundanity of it, you know, like, that it's not, it's just normal people doing normal stuff. Like, like kids take drugs, kids have arguments, and I've been around it because of my own recovery. I've been around it all my life because I was a drug addict from like, you know, my late teens to my sort of till I was twenty-seven, and I've been in recovery one day at a time since then. And so, people dying as a result of their drug use or associated mental health issues or you know obviously you know you know how many ways that can play out it's become sort of normal and um I, because of that because of that i like feel like i want to be able to as obviously you obviously master when you said that thing i promise i'm promise me i'm not going to be a bereaved parent you want to be able to wrench it away you want to wrench it away there's been a few drug addicts where i've gone like 
I, you know what I've always found? I don't know how this chimes with your deeper experience, but like, like the, almost like the more I sort of go, listen, this person definitely not. I'm going to put myself as a shield between this person and the grave. Them ones, they're finished. You know what I mean? It's almost like, I, like the, the, the inability to control it, the inability to understand it, predict it, prevent it. I don't, like, in, you obviously sort of indicated at the beginning of your story that there's possibly a fact of the early exposure prior to your son living with you is a factor. How how did you begin to process under, and understand and, and accept your the loss of your son? So first of all, it's a different world we're in, as you know. You know, when I first learned a program years ago, I would hear relapse is a part of recovery. Relapse is normal. Relapse is what's going to happen. I got that when it was alcohol and cocaine. Now, with my son in this world, the drugs are deadlier. You know, I actually, one of the things I began doing is I would bring people from sober living to his grave. And I would go, I just want you to know, this is another face of relapse. You know, relapse isn't you're just going to drag yourself to the meeting and start over. Uh. It's also how relapse can look. Make no mistake, the drugs are deadlier now. I'm working with someone. It's like crazy what's happening here, and I'm sure happening there. There's a woman I'm working with, Laura Berman. She's been public about it. Her son went on Snapchat and ordered Xanax. Like, just like, you know, just alter my mood a little bit, mellow out. It was laced with fentanyl and he died first time. That's out of the gate in our new world now. Like on Snapchat, there's a menu for drugs. I'm like, Snapchat, isn't that about faces? So back to my son, you know, you, you, um, you mentioned my own healing as I, I had, it, you know, it was really hard because I had to sit with, am I going to take the advice I gave everyone? And my advice was go to grief counseling, <laughs> grief group. And I had to literally go to a grief group, took my contacts out, put my glasses on, put a cap on. I had to sit in grief groups with literally my books four feet away on a table. Wow. And not say, that's me. I'm the expert. I couldn't be him. I had to sit there and be the father who had to bury a son. That was a pretty humbling thing to have to do. I mean, it was, I, I now because of those experiences, when people walk into one of my grief groups or come online on a grief group or show up for counseling, I applaud now because I know now how hard it is just to walk in that room. I never got that before. Yeah. These things you've said about um, finding meaning as a kind of almost, it sounds to me like a culminative or transcendent stage of this 
grief process, which you have now articulated, was never meant to be taken as literally as I was taking it. Because I think people like the certainty of this, then this, then this, then this. Because it's too unknowable. It's too unknowable, the sudden absence of love, the, su- the sort of certainty of seeing someone's face and knowing that they're there. And I feel too much uncertainty in the world anyway, that the things that I love, I just want that there permanent. And if like, you know, that, so I suppose it's very appealing to go, right, I'm going to feel anger then i'm going to reject it then i'm going to negotiate like you know it's sort of some there's some comfort in that rather than more peculiar nuance when friends like lose someone it's always some fucking terrible detail that nails me to the floor when like someone says like when my mate's mum died and she went she talked to the funeral about like having cups of tea with her mum and then went i've not had one since like and then another friend saying that um like when he's mum died like finding her handwriting like in like post-it notes in her kitchen like it's them things are too much and like when my my mate died last year after having like um brain cancer for a long time like when um like you know he, he, he i knew you know he was dying so but he adapted so well to all these various sort of stages and the things that he went through and the intrusive brain surgery and all the kind of things, you know. What was really weird is something that you said about, like, you know, they're going to be dead a long time, is that I sort of, there was a point where I thought, like, I went through the sort of drama, I guess, the theatre, the literal theatre of a funeral, and, like, you know, and all of that, and, and then sort of, sort of six months later, after sort of thinking about him, he's not someone I lived with, he was a big, he was a big part of my life for a while, but, you know, so I'm, a, you know, I live a different type of life now. But I loved Martino so much, and like then, like for, like oh fucking, hell, he's still dead. Like well, he's still dead after a year. Is this not going to move into a different thing where he's not dead anymore? You know, like the, the, that obvious thing of the permanence of it, the details, the nuance, and the sort of horrifying vertiginous permanence is so hard to stand. Right, and I think you know that's you you know we, we're all sort of surprised that we don't leave the dead behind. You know, he's going to keep coming up in your world. You know, things are going to happen. They're going to remind you of him, remind you of something you did together. And you're going to be like, yeah, he's not here. He's not seeing this. So, and I'm also a big believer in not giving death any more power than it has. Death has the power to physically take him. Death does not have the power to end your relationship with him. Death does not have the power to end your love with him. That continues. You know, it's interesting when I work with the dying and have worked in hospitals and hospices, sometimes someone's dying and the family members are in there and the dying person's sleeping. And I'll say, you up for an experiment? And they'll go, sure. I'll go, you go in, your loved one's sleeping. What do you do? You sit and you watch them sleep. I'll say, turn your chair around where you cannot see them. And I just want you to sit there and feel them. And they'll go, okay, why? And I'll go, because we have a relationship with one another that relies on the physical. I think I'm physically with you when I physically see you. I think my only connection is to see you. But turn your back to your loved one because our connections are physical, spiritual, and emotional. And when the physical is gone, 
you're going to have to rely on just the emotional and spiritual. But that relationship does and can continue. It's, it's not like, oh, good, everything's fine. I mean, you miss the person physically like hell. There's no substitute for a hug or, you know, getting together. But they still exist, I believe. Now, let me get back to something you said about comfort in the, in the stages. I think that's great. And believe me, when my son died, I was exactly the same way. I'm like, all right, here's denial. Yep, I'm angry at my son. I'm angry at God. I'm angry at addiction. I'm angry at the pharmaceuticals. Bargaining, yep, here I am. What if I had done this? What if I had gotten to one more 12-step? What if I would gotten him to another program? And then the sadness of depression. And I'll tell you, when I began to wrestle with acceptance, I was like, I'm not stopping there. That's it. I just accept his death. He's gone. That's not enough. I, I wanted to find more and I didn't know what it was. It's weird. I had written a couple of chapters on meaning. And at one point I was like sitting at this very desk, just in deep pain. And I picked up those chapters on meaning and I looked at them and I went, yeah, like that's going to help. And I threw them down. And then a couple of weeks later, I picked it up again. It didn't take the pain away, but it gave me a cushion. And I started talking to people about how they found meaning. After a spouse died, a child died, a parent died, a pet died, a partner, a fiance, a job, a tragedy. And I was so taken and I even went back and researched Viktor Frankl's work, Man's Search for Meaning, and in the Holocaust, like, how do you find light in the darkness? How do you appreciate a sunrise in a concentration camp? And so I began to study that. And it was interesting. People kept going, well, that's the sixth stage. That's the sixth stage. And at one point, I finally talked to the Kubler-Ross family and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation. And I was so touched that they gave me permission to add a stage to her iconic stages. And uh, that became the new book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. I always say up front, people get confused. They'll go, there's no meaning in your son's death. There's no meaning in a murder. There's no meaning in an overdose. There's no meaning in substance abuse. There's no meaning in substance disorder or a <coughs> pandemic. There's no meaning in a pandemic. And I'll go, no, there's not meaning in that horrific thing. Meaning is in us. Meaning is what we do after the tragedy. Meaning is how can we come out of this with not post-traumatic stress, but how can we come out of this with post-traumatic growth? How, um, so how, is like taking recovering kid to visit your son's grave part of your pursuit of purpose meaning i think it is i think writing about this teaching about this i'm a big believer that helping is healing being of service is healing i hope this podcast will heal help so many people who are isolated in their pain in this pandemic, in their grief. 
you know, I think part of the work is to name meaningful moments. People think of meaning as, oh, I got to start a charity, a foundation. No, no, no. This is a meaningful moment you and I are having right now. This is meaningful. Let's call it what it is. We're making meaning. Yeah, I had like I had an example where I was doing an event for, uh, you know, for raising money for a big British charity for drugs, uh, for you know, addiction for recovery, and um, it was at an arena and there were big musicians and comedians and I was hosting in. It was on the TV, and it had the it what it felt like was what it always feels like when I do stuff like that. But a friend of mine had his son there. And he he said, "We well, talk to my son. I'm worried about him. He's using drugs and all that." And like, I just spoke to that kid, like just off on the side, and we just chatted. And like I said, this is what it's like, and this is why I did it, and these are the feelings that dr- motivate my drug use, and this is what, what the the way that you can stop it. And like that felt real. That had more sort of. I can't remember the feeling of the rest of it. It just falls into a sort of a sort of a miasma of other events I've done, charity, not charity, performance. But that that connection felt like it connected a deeper truth. What do you think um, about do you think there's that we culturally have a taboo around death that we have an inability to sort of embrace and accept death both on an individual and a social cultural level and that that might even contribute to the sort of delirium around coronavirus that we sort of have like it somehow um initiated a cult of death denial and that we don't know how to incorporate it into our sort of our social experience and that, that that's somehow a, a result of rationalism materialism and individualism Yeah, let's break that down and talk about that, because think about in this world, you know, we're talking about addiction, also suicide, death by suicide, mental illness, you know, there's cancer, there's illness, there's murder, there's so many tragedies in the world, and then we got our pandemic. And with all that, I'm still a hopeful guy, believe it or not. But I'll tell you, it goes back to this. First of all, Americans, I think this might be about the Western world. We sort of feel like death is optional. (laughs) Like, yeah, maybe we'll try it. Maybe we won't. And, you know, there's, there's this live long, live healthy and all that, which is great. But, you know, there is a um, optimism that can become denial. So I think about when I was a child, when I was a child, we'd be driving to school or just, you know, to the park or seeing a friend or something, and we'd be stuck behind a hearse. You would just, there would be hearses driving our city. You haven't been behind a hearse in a long time because hearses now only take a body from the chapel to the graveside. The dead move around our cities now in white unmarked vans. We have sanitized this experience of death. You want to see death? You got to like watch a movie or a series about it. You know, there was a time death was in your house. You watched your loved ones die up close. The same way you have weddings, you had deaths. Now, death, you know, has illness moved into the hospital, death moved into the funeral home. We don't see it anymore. We forget things like literally our coffee table in our living room was where we would put the casket. That's what it was built for. 
you know, if you look at old houses in the 40s, they have the wide doors so the cast could get in and out. And so much has changed in our world. And I can remember when those hearses went by, the guy working on the electrical line would come down, take his hat off and stand with respect. The guy mowing the grass in his lawn would turn it off and come out and stand. We don't have a modern experience of death in our world. We're shocked when it comes to us. And, you know, people that I work with will go, David, our family's cursed. Our family's cursed. We've had this death and this death and this death. And I'll go, you know what the death rate is in a family? A hundred percent. Like you're all going to die. You're not cursed. That is what life looks like. <laughs> I, I wonder if a sort of an unanticipated ancillary to a culture that's about commodification, consumerism, uh, a, a byproduct of which is this sort of fetishization of youth and beauty, perfection, all of which are sort of a, a kind of requirements of commodity that you can, which and commodity itself is kind of about control that you can buy life, you can control life when all of our order rests upon this, you know, at least to, in a sort of in a physical sense, a kind of limitless chaos that everything about us is going to be subject to entropy. It's going to fall apart. Our lives are going to fall apart. And it feels to me like um, that the only way out of this on a personal and I would assume therefore social level is a kind of um, an embrace of the aspect of the self that... Uh, it, if not if is if not impermanent because how could we possibly know is certainly not anchored to the temporal like when you said that um when in a hospice turning the back on the, the terminally ill and experiencing them in a non uh, sensual way that on a personal level I like I meditate and stuff and I wonder if like that I sometimes feel that what I'm trying to do is have an experience of being that is not about being Russell and I wonder if that that is vital somehow. Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, look, it's a strange phenomenon. Here's the strange phenomenon. Back in the physical world, when I was doing like retreats and conferences, you know, we'd have a few hundred people at your local big hotel in a ballroom. And in this ballroom, we'd have our meeting. In the next room was the accountants. In the next room was the nurses who were learning Spanish. And after all the conferences were done, the cleaning people would be cleaning the rooms and they'd say to me, hey, what was your meeting? And I would go, why do you ask? And they'll go, because your group was laughing the most. And I'll go, oh, it was grief. And they'll go, grief? What kind of grief are you laughing about? Here's the thing. When you understand this life is temporary and you understand this moment is not guaranteed and you get the horrific things that happen in life, it stretches your bandwidth for pain, unfortunately, but it also stretches your bandwidth for joy. Death for me makes this life more valuable. It makes me go, let me not throw away this moment with Russell. This is just not another interview I'm doing. Let me make the most of this day. I may never have this day again. You know, I love and I wrote about 
there's a play Our Town and the characters given the chance to go back to their life after they're dead for one day. And the character goes, oh, let me pick an important day, my wedding day or this day, and is told, pick an ordinary day, it will be enough. How can we have an ordinary day that's enough? Just like you say, just that act of meditating and being present is about getting grounded in this moment, in this life, and taking it in. Do you believe in God? Do you think that it's important to believe in God or not believing in God? Do you think either of those things are important? You know, I often say I speak all languages. My my own family is Jewish and evangelical, which makes for like a comedy <laughs> in the like most horrible way. A lot of tension. A lot of tension in a lot of different areas. But um, I work with people who are every religion and atheist. I think that people who have a belief, and sometimes the belief is just in meaning. You know, we think about people who are atheists and agnostic and go, oh, they're living in a meaningless world. They're actually not meaningless. They just don't attribute it to God. I don't know what's next. I don't pretend to know. Um, I think if you have some belief system, it does seem to help. But I don't think it has to be in any one God or any one religion, clearly. It doesn't only help or even necessarily, if not correctly used, help with death. But I think potentially life. I often think about the number of people that I deeply admire that are or were, you know, religious, Malcolm X or Gandhi or like, you know, it seems to precisely because of what you say about meaning. I feel like this, you know, as you say, the, the loss of the hearse from the street and the loss of the accompanying secular rituals that you described has corollaries everywhere as meaning is slowly extracted, another byproduct of commodification, the idea that there's only, only what you can see, only what you can measure is real. And that beyond that, don't get involved. Only what you can acquire, right? That's part of it, you know? Yeah, right. I see. Yeah. What can I get, not who can I be? Yes, you're right. Because even if it's not a necessarily a luxurious and high living and high end life, you're still like, I can acquire this measly little product or this particular drug or this particular salve. Rather, that there's not a sense that firstly cultivate this inner space and find find who you are and then from there work out what your relationship is with everything else well think about all advertising all advertising is you're not enough and you're going to die and decay so we've got a yeah. product or we've got something to help you be enough and stick around and look better and you know that that's not the reality of it the reality is life is going to change and we can ride that wave or we can fight that wave and you know going back to grief i also think there's a lot of myths that i learned with my own son the work isn't to make the grief smaller the work is for us to get bigger it's for us to grow around the grief and that's that's a shift in our thinking 
I watched that movie again the other day, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which um, if you don't know it, the concept is that you could eradicate the memory of someone that's broken your heart so you don't have to feel the loss anymore of that heartbreak. Just remove them, exorcise them in a neurological way from your life. And I feel like that that's, again, our discomfort to accept pain. And I think so much of, you know, speaking as an addict in recovery, like this inner, like... I want to shut stuff down. As soon, like as soon as those things appear, I think shut that, get that out. That's too, sometimes too beautiful, too painful. And like in a sense, drug addiction. I think of it as a sort of a, a commodifying mentality, or you know, or or consumerism as a kind of an aspect of addiction. In that it can be purchased, it can be controlled. I remember when I became a drug addict, it was a fucking re- relief, David, because it was something that you could rely on. Like I know what this is going to do, more or less there it's going to shut that stuff down acknowledge what you're saying about you know and i feel it now as a man in my 40s like it's a different landscape that that drugs are acquired differently they have a different impact and it's always like hearing you talk just then it was like the kind of scare tactic at uh, commercials and pamphlets that i would have been dismissive of from the 1980s just say no drugs kill which i sort of saw as sort of foreclosing the positive things that drugs do and the reality of drugs but now we live in this yeah as you say this fentanyl and like the, the landscape that has these sort of potent chemicals in it you can yeah precisely you can no longer be bl- blasé about that type of stuff and the other thing about that that i want to go back to is even at my own son's funeral one of my friends did not show up for it. And I said to them later, how come you weren't there? And they were like, it was just too hard. And I remember one of my big audiences that I teach are therapists and counselors. And one of them raised their hand one day and said, I have a client who can't attend funerals. What's, what's their diagnosis? What's wrong with them? They just find them too sad. And I go, um, selfish, narcissistic, <laughs> self-centered. I mean, any of those would work. When did we get this idea that like, all right, I'll go to the funeral, but it's not going to be a downer, right? And part of that is <clears throat> we're looking for life that's all peaks and hills and mountains to climb. But what you were mentioning is there's valleys in life. The funeral is sad. The breakup is hard. The divorce is brutal. And that's part of our landscape of this life. And none of us get to ping from mountaintop to mountaintop. There's valleys in between. And we're going to walk those dark nights. And we're going to walk them alone. And if you're lucky, there's people who are willing to hold your hand or be there on the other side, but there is no life. There is no light without darkness. And and I also, if it's all right, I, I wanna go back to the addiction and mental illness and death by suicide. You know, my belief from what I've been seeing, and I think it's been changing in our world, is the belief was just say no, The belief was death by suicide is a selfish thing to do. It's a long-term answer to a short-term problem and all that crap people would hear. And we are realizing in science, in medicine, addiction, mental illness, death by suicide, being mentally compromised are illnesses. 
They are illnesses that you can't choose away or wish away or shame away. And until we treat it that way, things aren't going to change. I got to tell you, when I think of Kubler-Ross, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross brought death out of the darkness and said, we got to talk about it. Uh, you know, I, I think about Betty Ford, who said, I've got an addiction. We can talk about it. I had the privilege of working with Michael Landon, the actor from Little House on the Prairie, who went on The Tonight Show and said, I'm going to talk about cancer. There was a time there was stigma and shame around cancer. I look forward to the day there's not stigma and shame around addiction, mental illness, death by suicide, their illnesses. And as I work with people who have had loved one die from all of them, you've probably heard the three C's, I'm sure. You couldn't control it. You couldn't cure it. And you didn't cause it. Because loved ones, so many times in grief, are left with guilt that if only they had done one thing different, they're haunted by two words, what if? Yeah. And it's tragic that that illness happens sometimes no matter how hard our loved ones try. What rituals or techniques do you propose people that are suffering from, uh, you know, people that are grieving, uh, uh, try? Is there anything uh, sort of technical or practical that you suggest? Well, we live in a grief illiterate world and we need our grief witnessed. We have to talk about it. We have to, we're not meant to be islands of grief. We, we, we need to talk about it with one another if we can't do it in person, we do it online. Like, you know, we talked about grief.com. I have online groups these days that literally thousands of people get together online that we can talk about it. We have to tell our family members, it's okay to say their name. We haven't forgotten about them. Nothing magically happened at a year. We have to be able to be open about these days, you know, here's one of the things I think has happened. It's a negative byproduct of the self-help world. A negative byproduct is people look at things like anger. Oh, that doesn't feel very spiritual. They look at things like grief. No, no, that's not a positive feeling. Like I wrote a book. One of my best friends was Louise Hay, who's like was the queen of affirmations. We wrote a book on grief. Like it's okay. These are okay feelings. So what happens is because we got so aware in self-help, we have these feelings that don't feel positive. And we go, oh, I'm angry, but I shouldn't be angry. Oh, I'm sad, but you know, that's not good for the planet. I shouldn't feel sad. And we have all these half-felt emotions. And it's like a bunch of little Tupperwares behind us that we keep like stuffing away. And I tell people, it's okay, feel the anger fully. You know, I always say anger is pain's bodyguard. Just feel the anger fully, don't hurt anyone or anything, and it'll dissipate. Feel the sadness fully. People say to me all the time, it's one of the things I hear the most, 
if I started crying, I'd never stop. And I'm always like, I have sat with probably millions of people. Everyone stopped crying eventually. Everyone did. It's a myth. This feeling's gonna pass. You're gonna get another feeling right behind it. People don't like to integrate. There's a lacking of the integrity of the necessary shadows that light casts and even uh, with Jungian ideas of which I am unlike a lot of people rather a fan like su suggest that to become a uh, an unfolding and awakened self the necessary incorporations the incorporation of uh, these aspects of ourself need be undertaken and like, like you said with the, the tupper, Tupperware example there I feel like we see ourselves as being in a managerial role to darker emotions, avarice, lust, sad, sadness. And like when you spoke before about the stigmatization around, you know, cancer, perhaps as a result of probably some of the people you've cited, has become a subject that people can talk about and be open about. My mum got cancer a lot of times. My mum's had cancer and survived somehow seven times. And the first time was when I was seven years old and she was sick and it was very it was mysterious david like you know my mother was gone and then i was with a grandparent and then i was staying with friends and i was staying with my dad in like you know that my parents went together it was such a sort of peculiar time and it really sort of i want to say like uh, i think it made my mother kind of divine in my life the idea that she was gonna be lost and like and also even things that were sort of positive like you know i got better because of you like they, i got a lot of stuff that made me have an odd relationship with sort of power and control and stuff that I think would be diagnosed as enmeshment now. I remember like sort of over the course of like, you know, even my life, the way that cancer is seen and talked about has certainly changed. And I, I remember that sort of Michael Landon was a sort of significant figure in that. But it feels to me that we're almost, whether it's not we're individually determined or somehow it's culturally imposed to not have a, a whole experience. Like, I think of whom I'm very fond, Mark Fisher, God rest his soul, says that, like, you know, these are like mental illness and addiction. These are sort of social phenomenon. They're, they're not, these things aren't happening in isolation. They're, they're uh, you know, um, collateral damage of the, the relentless march of particular ideologies. And, and if you take a case like the sort of 10,000 suicides of farmers in India in 2019 as a result of, like, some of the policy changes that are happening in India, you can see how politics intersects with you know obviously with society to create this this kind of phenomena or men not being able to talk about their feelings or people in general feeling like i shouldn't be feeling this and that should be i i i i wonder i mean obviously it's your life's work to promote this particular aspect of uh, of healing and to make it more palatable well i think we have to be able to name these you can't heal what you don't feel you know we're in a pandemic right now Loss is all around us. People go, oh, I don't know why I woke up so sad or I'm crying and it's so depressing to go out. I'm like, because you're in grief. You know, there's micro griefs and micro griefs, big and little griefs. You know, the loss of restaurants, the loss of life without masks, the loss of freedom without traveling. These are all losses we're feeling now. I think, you know, we, we, we are really confronted with grief. And, you know, here we, we just had a leader who was not versed in empathy. And now we have a new leader 
who, you know, he was, I, I was privileged for him to give me a call after his son had died. And he certainly knows grief and talks about it. And I, my hope is that we're learning how to talk about this and deal with this because those shadow sides of what we're going through are, are part of us. We can't escape them. We can't whitewash them, but we can talk about them. We can connect with them. We can still be, you know, and I believe whether it's the pandemic or death or tragedy. And I mean, my goodness, you've been through stuff. I've been through shootings. My son dying listeners who are hearing this have been through horrible crap. And yet I still hold hope for us. You know, I still think there will be no storm that doesn't pass. There will be a future after this. And we got to continue to live because even when the story of our loved one ends, our story hasn't. And we deserve a life that honors all those who were here before us. Grief.com is a... Uh, something that you have founded so that people have a place to grieve together. Can you tell us some more about that, mate? Yeah, we have lots of resources. There's a free Facebook group. If people need more support, there's an advanced group called Tender Hearts. We have uh, tons of resources, free things to help. We've got something like for anyone who's had a loved one die by suicide. Uh, we have... Um, uh, griefsuicide.com. They can go to parentforever.com. You can find all these on grief.com. Just even about grief.com. People don't know the basics of grief. So there's so many resources there just to help you with this world we're dealing with, with the pandemic, understanding it. Uh, to let us know, even when it gets dark, we can still hold each other's hands virtually. How how are you doing then? How are you getting through it personally? Like, I mean, this situation. It's challenging. It's challenging on so many levels. I mean, obviously, I miss my son. Uh, I miss this world that, you know, I live just down the street from a great street that used to have vibrant restaurants and stores. And you walk out there and like it's another place closed. You know, there's vaccines. Thank goodness we've got hope. And it's like, ah, oh, and now there's variants. So there's there's a, a wave we're all having to ride. And, you know, each day is a challenge. That's why we got to get through this together and connect and check on one another. In grief, we can't bring each other casseroles right now. We got to like Zoom and we got to FaceTime and we got to call. Do you do that systematically? Do you make that part of your life? Having had the experience of establishing these sort of notorious and defining ideas around grief, then experiencing grief and being in that bizarre, poetic and sort of somehow dreadful but oddly beautiful situation of being in a support group and seeing your own literature present as a as, you know, sort of standard text and of, of, the, of the module, how, how, how are you now utilizing your skill set in a in a pandemic what do you have a like an active program around support groups reaching out and service and how, how do you do it five days a week we have zoom calls for people in our support groups five days a week so that you literally we do this face to face with people just like you and i are doing now and uh some people listen in just like we're doing now we also you know just share one of the things that happens in grief and in life 
is we find ourselves in each other's stories. You know, when I talk to you or any one person, they can go, yes, but, yes, but. When someone's blaming themselves and I'm talking to them and you're listening to me talking to someone else, you're like, ooh, I do that too. And you can almost learn from a group, I believe in some ways better. So I'm a big believer in us finding connections and group work. And, you know, it's just, um, I, I, I think even as brutal in some ways as my life has been, I still get, it's not guaranteed. You know, people say to me um, that idea about, oh my gosh, I'm sure you can't find any gratitude in your life given what's happened with shootings or your son dying and all that. And I'm like, oh no, I can find gratitude. It's not gratitude at first. I would call it a win. A win is you took a shower that day or you ate that day. But eventually it moves to gratitude. And for me, what that looked like is there's only one thing I could think of worse than my younger son, David, dying. And that's me never getting to meet him this lifetime. That would have been the worst tragedy. As horrible as it is, your friend dying, what a tragedy if you never got to know him. And life continues on. My older son just got engaged. I mean, in the darkness of death, life continues. And when I'm sitting with people, sometimes they'll go, there's no point, there's no meaning. I'll grab their wrist and go, you still got a pulse. There's still hope here. Let's work on that together. That's beautiful. That's beautiful, mate. I, and like you mentioned, uh, Victor Frankl, and it seems that that really, if we can somehow frame our reality around what is beautiful and what survives, then yeah, then then hope abides. It's very uh, like my life is sort of held together. It's weird when I've heard people in addiction say, you know, I don't, I won't drink or use because of my kids. I think my kids is what's going to make me drink and use, you know, like I feel like I, I, I need the support of, I need the support of, you know, I get a lot from working with men, like men in sort of 12 step situations. I get, I feel that somehow the, the part of the ingenuity of the 12 steps is an ability, both for its, the, the, for the 12 step fellowships and through the 12 step literature, replicate kind of conditions that are um, perhaps anthropologically salient somehow we're evolved to live in tribes we evolved to, to have communities of 75 to 100 people and operate in this way that it's it's tangible like it's sort of very different from the, that sense of being spilled in an alienating and atomized culture where it's very difficult to understand where that where meaning might be you know i can feel the meaning of oh that person feels better i hear people i look at them they go you know, you helped me when you did this thing. And sometimes I feel like they're talking about someone else or something else. Because, you know, like even before when I've thought for people that have ended their own lives or people that have relapsed in addiction, I suppose you don't hear about the people that didn't end their own life, the people that didn't use drugs because of the small acts of kindness that we can collaboratively and communally create, the kind of environments we can create that are nourishing. You don't hear those stories so much. Let me tell you one of those quick stories, if I may. Yeah. My son, David, my younger son who died, needed 
health insurance. And we had these fights over getting him health insurance. And he had all kinds of feelings between Obamacare. I mean, it was just riddled with issues. So he finally said, okay, I'll get health insurance. I just got on the internet and found an agent who was close by. I said, let's meet at this agent's office. We met at this agent's office. I knew this was going to be a hideous meeting from hell. I think, you know, who knows what's going to happen. There's going to be inappropriate things said and some stuffy insurance agent's going to hear this. This insurance agent walks in who's young and hip with her hair streaked pink. And I can just feel my son going, oh, brother. And I got to tell you, this insurance agent didn't do anything special, but because of who she was, it turned a gruesome possibility of a meeting into a really fun time. I mean, my son would bitch about something and she'd be like, yeah, I know, isn't it? And it was just, you know, it was like, great. We left, he had insurance, we gave each other a hug. That was the last time I was with my son. Her very being changed my experience. When people go, I gotta do something special in the world. No, you don't. Be an amazing person in your everyday life. Be your best self, be kind, be funny, be willing to go sad if you need to. The authenticity of her changed everything for me. That's cool. That's cool. Because yeah, you don't you can try to impose some reality, you know, like but for me I'm grandiose. So I'll think, oh I should be doing this and then that'll happen and it'll have these positive effects. But yeah, by simply being and being present, then a grace can be transmitted. You can get out of the way and grace can be transmitted. Yeah, like we say, everyone has a struggle you know nothing about. No one's really fine. We're all just saying we are, you know, and to just be present for one another and have some love and some compassion, you know, to realize like none of our feelings are final. We move through them all. Life continues. Yeah, it's really good to talk to you because, you know, like I'm embarrassed, ashamed perhaps even to say that like I sort of sometimes still like seemingly to me in relatively minor situations, suicidal thoughts, I like it just comes. I just think, oh, they'd be better off if I just was dead. They'd be better off. It would be easier for them. You know, even like in the fact, like with my, I've got young children, I've in a happy marriage. I've got, you know, a, a lovely little life. <laughs> But for me, sometimes some concoction, somehow of ordinary life. And when I once did this, I did this thing where I um, performed a verbatim piece made out of people's last words, you know, text messages, emails, mostly men, all men. And like the things that they put for the reasons they were ending their life, it was all just like normal stuff that you, I think every day. <laughs> I'm not good enough. I'm in too much debt. This situation's not going to resolve itself. People will be better off without me. And I realized, oh my God, the line is, there's no line there. It's sort of almost a timing issue or something. Like this is, they're not saying like this weird catastrophic gothic stuff. It's just normal experiences, you know. And, and it's an illness of our mind that happens 
And just like you said, there, there's not this one thing that we can go, oh, if we just make sure everyone doesn't have financial problems, no one will ever die. But I'll tell you the other thing that you did that's so important. And this goes back to our positive thinking world we live in. You saying, I have those feelings, brings it out in the open. I hope it releases some of your shame. I hope it releases other people's shame. I, uh, you, I'm sure you know Brene Brown, friend of mine, you probably know her too, that, you know, we got to say these things. We got to be open about it. And we also live in a mental health world that sometimes when people say it only goes, oh my goodness, let's find a way to control him for three days until those feelings pass. And we don't know how to just talk you through that and be there. Because how many times I'm sure people have said to you, don't talk that way, man. And what do we do? We shut you down and shut your feelings down and make you feel bad for saying what your feelings. Yeah. And I, on the other side of that, so much like, not in funnily enough, in a 12 step environment, I listen, I witness whatever. People I care about and love, I go rescuer immediately. What? What do you mean? Right. Well, we're going to do this and this and this and this. No, we're going to like, I feel like it's my job, you know? Right. And we know from research that people who have attempted a death by suicide and survived, they all tell us they weren't trying to die. They were trying to manage the pain. They weren't thinking about what it's going to be like for their loved ones. They were in too much pain. They weren't being selfish. They were in pain. You know, when you're in pain, pain is all there is. That's why we've yeah. got to check on one another. We've got to talk to one another. We got to say, no, really, how you doing today? What's going on today? Really? You feel like you want to end it all? Tell me more about that. I'm here to listen. You're not alone. You're important. Thank you. Uh, that's really good. Thanks, David. That was a really um, amazing conversation. Thanks for making things so clear. And thanks for writing those books. And thank you for being so uh, lucid uh, uh, and open about the various losses in your life, particularly the loss of your son and uh, my sympathy and love to you. And, and I honor his memory with you. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you and everyone in the physical world again at some point. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. New especially the bits where I nearly <laughs> cried. Which bits did I nearly cry? The whole though? way through. I wasn't nearly crying the whole way Your through. Your eyes were red the whole way through. All right, I ain't been well. Oh, well, now you're saying you're not well. <laughs> I haven't been well. <laughs> Let me know if, what you thought of it on, you know, the internet, on all the various things that there are on the internet. There's TikTok, that's on there, Instagram, all of them. Um, but most importantly of all, go to russellbrand.com to get exclusive syndicate. Oh, that's a good name. Join the syndicate. Like yeah. like a like a lotto ticket? No, not like a lotto <laughs> ticket. Like a pyramid scheme. Yeah, that's what I thought as well. Pyramid scheme. All right, not Join the pyramid scheme. Yeah. It's just look, it is just a mailing list. That's level with you. But it could be known as the Alliance, but that's Darth Vader's gang, isn't it? The Alliance. Why don't you send us some name suggestions? Obviously not Reich, because that's got a lot of negative connotations. What what has positive connotations though? Um, Army, gang, 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 gang. Gang's cool. Yeah, what about gang violence? Is that cool? <laughs> 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 <laughs>
<laughs> of course you can win with the alliance with the clique <laughs> click 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 why don't you become join the elites oh but you don't like elites remember oh no we don't like them no alright well anyway look if you enjoyed this lovely podcast um, with David Kessler you should go back and listen to Professor Paul Dolan he's a brilliant professor what or Wim Hof he's a brilliant whim and keep checking my youtube channel daily for new videos and thanks for listening to me russell brand on under the skin